The sermon text this morning is taken from Matthew chapters 4, verses 3 through 25, and chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father is who is who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty good works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, astonishment at your teaching doesn't save. Recognizing your authority doesn't save. Calling you Lord, Lord doesn't save. Prophesying in your name doesn't save. Casting out demons in your name doesn't save. Doing many mighty works in your name doesn't save. Nothing that we can do can save us. Only you are the rock who can. We pray for you to call those already your own into a deeper and fuller and richer life of discipleship. And we pray for those not yet your own that you would call them into life on this very day. We pray with thanksgiving in your name. Amen. Well, we're beginning this morning uh, our study of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're doing it, which is the most famous block of our uh, Lord's teaching. as Matthew uh, chapter 5 through chapter 7. Clearly the most uh, well-known, if, if we can even say it like that. A block of our Lord's teaching, even if people don't know, even if non-Christians don't know the contents of the Sermon on the Mount, almost everybody has heard that phrase and knows it has something to do with Jesus. And so this morning, what I want to do is look at the bookends of the Sermon on the Mount. And I think they're very helpful and very important in the way that Matthew has set the set the Sermon on the Mount in in the flow of his gospel. Uh, we look uh, we look at the end of chapter four first, and those verses I, I think really preview for us uh, the big picture of Jesus's uh, mission, and thus they prepare us for the Sermon on the Mount. 
to understand it rightly, what is the Sermon on the Mount about? It's what we're going to find as we go through it is that people tend to think about the Sermon on the Mount just as this disembodied uh, collection of Jesus's ethical teachings. And that's a wrong way to understand it. It is about it is part and parcel with his larger mission. And so that's why we'll look at uh, the end of chapter four. And then we're looking at the end of chapter seven so that we know how we're supposed to come out of the Sermon on the Mount. And what we're supposed to do with it. And so we're going to just by way of introduction this morning, we're going to we're going to ease our way into the Sermon on the Mount by looking at three uh, themes, if you will, that we see in these bookends. The first is the greatness of Jesus's mission to men to men. The second is the greatness of Jesus's heart for men. And then finally, the greatness of Jesus's call to men. Let's look first at the greatness of Jesus's mission to men, the very end of of chapter four, verses 23 through 25. And you'll remember uh, back in chapter one, you remember when the when Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant by the Holy Spirit and he's considering whether or not he should divorce her. And the angel of the Lord comes and says, no, this child is conceived of the Holy Spirit and you're going to adopt him. You're going to you, Joseph, are going to call his name Jesus. And you remember what the reason is that the angel of the Lord gives to Joseph. He says, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus's name, in other words, is his mission. And now, so the question becomes, there's really two questions. What does it mean to save someone from their sins? And secondly, who are his people? What does it mean to save someone from their sins? Now, the, the standard answer that people would give to that is, well, you, 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 you save somebody from their sins by uh, bearing the penalty for their sins and uh, securing eternal life for them. And his people are those who believe in his work. And both of those answers, while they're true, they're too shallow. Because what Matthew shows us in the, at the very end of chapter 4, which is his summary of the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, shows us two things. That Jesus' mission has both a depth to it that is surprising And it has both a breadth to it that's very surprising as well. Jesus has come for the healing. Uh, What it means for Jesus to save his people from their sins is that he has come to save the whole person. The healing of the whole person. That's the first part of Jesus' mission. That's the depth of it. And the breadth of it is that he has come for the healing of the whole world. Now, let's think first about the depth of Jesus's mission in uh, chapter four, verses 23 through 25. The gospel is for the whole person in this beginning uh, of Jesus's ministry. This summary phrase, you notice there are two big strands, particularly in verse 23, that Matthew uh, identifies in Jesus's in Jesus's ministry. One is teaching. Do you notice this? He went throughout all Galilee, verse 23, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So there's a teaching component to it. But notice he doesn't stop there. Jesus's ministry also involves healing. Notice this. And going on in verse 23 and a healing every disease and every affliction among the people, teaching and healing, not teaching as more important than healing or healing as more important than teaching. Jesus doesn't. He's right at the beginning of his ministry. What we're seeing is that the kingdom is not about disembodying human beings to extract the thing that is most precious in the sight of God about a person, which is their soul. And to get that away from the body and to get that away from the world and put it on a cloud with a harp in heaven. That is not what Jesus's ministry is about. Because God made man an integrated whole. We are embodied creatures. You can't separate your soul from your body. The only separation between soul and body is what's caused by death 
until the resurrection, friends. And that's unnatural. That's not God's design. And so Jesus' ministry is about the healing of the whole person. What it means to save His people from their sins is to save them from all the consequences of their sins. And death that was introduced as the wages of sin is, the, is, a, is, a, is a brutal, cutting thing that separates things that were not intended by God to be separated body and soul. And so for Jesus to heal a human being in the fullest sense, to, to save them from the consequences of their sins, it means to put back together what sin has put asunder. To heal holistically. From the beginning, sin has thrived on lies, right? Lies about God's goodness. And so for, for Jesus to save His people from their sins, there has to be a truth component. There has to be a teaching component uh, to, to counteract, to countermand, to overpower, to rebut the, the lies about the goodness of God with the truth about the goodness of God. There has to be teaching. Because it's not just our bodies that are broken. Our minds have been warped and misshapen by sin. We believe lies about God and about ourselves. Truth has to come in for God's kingdom to come, for His reign to be established, for His gracious character as our King to be made known. We need His truth. But we need healing. Not just in our minds, but in our bodies. I'm so tired of going to funerals. I'm so tired of going to cemeteries. I'm so tired of looking at holes in the ground. I'm so tired of watching people age. Aren't you? So tired of people's lives, watching their lives shrink on the outside. Friends, that's not natural. And Jesus has come and He's giving notice at the end of chapter 4 that His mission is that big. Because He's come not just to heal the whole person, but also to bring the Gospel for the whole world. You see, Jesus is is not just about uh, saving people. He's about renewing the realm of creation which was entrusted to God's image bearers. In creation, we were meant to rule and subdue, right? And so when we fell, guess what happened? God's judgment, the scope of God's judgment affected the thing over which we had been entrusted as God's stewards. It extended to creation. So that's why Paul says in Romans 8 that the creation was subjected to futility by God because of our sins so that we would never be able to escape the reality that the world is not the way it should be because we are not the way we were meant to be. And Jesus has come to heal every affliction. Those miracles that we're going to see throughout the rest of the Gospel and that we get this, get a taste of in this passage, they're previews. They're glimpses through the door of the world to the next world when the new heavens and the new earth come down when Jesus brings them. And all of creation will be renewed. Not just our bodies, but all of creation. It's an amazing vision. Jesus has a much bigger vision of His mission than we do. Let's just be honest. He's not content just to save the soul. He has come to save the whole man, the whole woman, the whole child. And He's not just content to save People, But He's come to renew the entire heavens and the entire earth. And His resurrection, friends, boom, is proof that the new creation has begun. So that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, just like we saw in our assurance of pardon, that if anyone is in Christ, actually it doesn't literally say He's a new creature. It says if anyone is in Christ... New creation. That's the force of what Paul is saying. He's saying, get it? The new creation is breaking in because you've joined yourself to Christ who is the first 
born of the new creation. Oh, what an awesome vision. But is it just for Jews? Not at all. In this most Jewish of Gospels, again, we see Matthew. I just I love Matthew. I just absolutely love his eye. The, the, the gospel writer you would least expect to be so sensitive to Gentiles is, in fact, the most sensitive to them. And you'll notice even in this opening chapter of Jesus's uh, ministry, Matthew's he's, here we go with the geography again. You notice from last week, you notice how many times uh, Matthew is emphasizing the end of chapter four, the scope of Jesus's ministry, where he went and where people came to him from they, his fame spread throughout all Syria, Gentiles. OK, and they brought him from Syria. OK, Gentiles being drawn to the king of Israel. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. He didn't turn the Gentiles away. It's a preview, friends, that the nations are going to come to Jesus and be welcomed by him because he's come first. And great crowds followed him from Galilee. Remember? Mostly a, a Gentile territory and the Decapolis, which was an area southeast of Galilee. And it was a, a, an area that was defined by ten cities, Greek cities, Gentile cities. And they're coming. And from Jerusalem and Judea. Oh, there you go. Matthew just throws it in. Yeah, Jews are coming too. And from beyond the Jordan, again, Gentiles. All the nations. And we're going to end Matthew's gospel right with the Great Commission. So Jesus's mission is absolutely huge. It's broad. It's deep in the sense that it extends to all people, uh, to the whole person. And it's broad in the sense that it extends to the entirety of creation and all the nations. It's a huge mission. And that means, guys, that means that the teaching we're going to encounter in the Sermon on the Mount is not time bound. It's not culture bound. It's relevant Transculturally, transhistorically, because the one who gives us the teaching is the only rock. So you can't insulate yourself from the Sermon on the Mount's implications by saying, well, that worked in that culture, but turn the cheek in mine. Come on. Poor in spirit? Sure. When you're actually poor. No. We don't get to cordon off its implications. See, it's very important that Matthew shows us this at the beginning. Now, let's go to the end. The greatness of Jesus' heart for men. And I love the way the Sermon on the Mount ends. I, I just absolutely thrills me and frightens me at the same time. I mean, were you, not, were you not shaken at some level with some of the things that Nathan read? If you weren't, you need to go back and you need to read it more slowly this afternoon. Uh, and anyone who has a vision of Jesus as this very gentle, never firm, never confronting kind of teacher, uh, Matthew seven thirteen through 29 are a quick antidote for that misconception. What we see in these uh, verses is a huge heart that Jesus has for men. And women and children. What I mean by that is this, these verses, this is where we see the depth and intensity of his love for us. Now, I know that might surprise you a little bit because there are four warnings here and they're very serious, but they're all the fruit of Jesus's incredibly deep and compelling love for us. Because you warn when you love somebody, you warn them. If you say you love somebody and you see them in danger and you don't warn them, guess what? You don't love them. Parents, you get this, right? Our kids may not get this. But we get this as parents, right? When you really love, you have to warn in the face of real danger. So look first with me. Well, let me say this before we get in there to these warnings. If if Matthew four twenty three through twenty five the end of of chapter four showed us that Jesus has a much bigger vision of his mission than we do, I would say that one of the things we see in these warnings here at the end of chapter seven is that Jesus Christ has a much greater vision of the importance of your life than you do. 
Do you know how important your life is in the sight of God? It's one of the greatest gifts that the gospel gives to us. It puts a lot of responsibility on us. But it's, it's such a blessing. You see, because the stakes of your life are not when and how and in what manner you're going to become dust again. That's what the world tells you. You know what the meaning of your life is? You're born, you pay taxes, you die. That is a very boring story. It is an undignified story. You are not an accident. You are not simply the accumulation of a bunch of purposeless atomic collisions. You are not a junkyard. You are an image bearer of God. And that means that your life is eternally significant and it is not loving for you not to be reminded of that. And so Jesus comes and He gives us these warnings and they grow out of this massive vision of the importance of human life. And the first warning he gives us is about the two ways in verses 13 and 14. You, you've heard these before. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. He's got two roads that he's describing at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and they're not running parallel to one another. They go in opposite directions. And the consequences of which road you're on are massively important. The one road is very popular, and it's easy to get on. And that is the road that leads to destruction. Jesus isn't using the words overtly for heaven and hell, but it's exactly what he's talking about. Destruction is his picture of hell and the judgment of God. And life is his picture of heaven and being in the kingdom of heaven. That, that road leads to destruction. It's popular. Right? It's where the flow goes. It's the easy one. There's no front end cost. You just go right in. No restrictions. No confinement. So much liberty to do whatever you want. And guess what? It's so wide. People come from other places, backgrounds totally different from yours. They're on that same path. And you go, this is great. This is like, you know, we're one world. This is awesome. Except at the end. That's when you find out what the cost is. And the other path. There's a high cost in the beginning. It's very confining. It's very narrow. There's no room for divided allegiances. There's no room for any baggage. It's very narrow. It's very small. And yet the farther you travel down that road, the greater the freedom and the greater the joy. I tried to think of an analogy for you guys, and I'm sorry, I wish I had a bigger funnel. Can you guys see that? Okay, I'm sorry. I'm not good at, at, uh, what do you call these things? Visual aids. But the first way is heading into the wide part of the funnel. It's really easy, okay? And there's nothing that confines you and constrains you. But there's a point at which, as you go down that journey, it's going to get very constraining. And there's going to be a cost at the end, less freedom. But if you follow the narrow way in the beginning, notice what happens. (laughs) Yeah, you pay the cost here. Jesus, Jesus insists on costs, my friends. He insists on the price of your repentance. He insists on your honesty about who you are. He will not negotiate. He is absolutely inflexible. He says, tell the truth about yourself to me. And he says also, tell the truth about me. I'm not your coach. I'm not a teacher. I'm not just a wise man. I'm not even satisfied if you call me the greatest teacher who ever lived or the wisest man who ever lived or the greatest ethicist who ever lived. That is not good enough for me. I am Lord or I am nothing. 
I am Lord or I am your judge. That's a high price to pay. I am your savior or I am nothing. That's a high price to pay. That's a loyalty that is very confining. That's very unpopular. But friends, there's only one way to life. And the danger Jesus sees for us is that we will get it wrong. Notice there are only two ways. You're either on the way to life or you're on the way to death. There is no third way. You say, it's kind of mean. It's kind of narrow. Why does Jesus tell us this? Why does he talk to us like this? It's because he wants us to enter. He wants us to have life. Don't you see? How does he begin? He says, enter by the narrow gate. You want to know my heart? My heart is I want you to enter the narrow gate. I want you to find life. I want you to be spared destruction. Yes, whatever the costs are, trust me, the life that you will receive on this path it totally, infinitely outweighs any sacrifice, any price you will have to pay. But this is the only way to life and I want you there. I want you to be spared destruction. I don't want you to be fooled by the easy way into thinking that this is how you can get into the kingdom of heaven. No, it is the path of judgment. Now think about that. Jesus Christ wants you to find life. Because He loves you. Because He loves you. Maybe you don't see it. Maybe you say, wait a second, you know, when you're when you're in the fat part of this funnel, man, things are going good. Maybe you don't see it. How dangerous it is. Friends, let Jesus be your eyes. Let him be your sight. His desire is that you would enter into life and you don't see where life is. Well, trust Jesus' vision better than you trust your own. Let Him be your eyes. You see, He sees where the roads lead. And He is saying, He's stepping onto the middle of the path right in front of you this morning. He is blocking your progress if you're on the wrong way. And He is saying, I need you to think about this. I love you too much not to tell you about this. Get off this road and enter by the narrow gate. Trust me on this. Why should you trust Him? Well, you should trust Him because nobody has walked a narrower path than Jesus Christ. Nobody has walked a harder way than Jesus Christ. Nobody, nobody, nobody has ever walked a harder path in life than Jesus Christ. A lifetime of putting himself under the yoke of God's law in a way and to a degree of faithfulness that no one else has ever, ever been through. And he has been faithful to the end. You know, these two paths, there actually is one place they intersect. Although I have to go beyond Matthew's gospel to describe this a little bit. There's one place that these two ways. Remember I said that they go in opposite directions? Well, in the, in the plan of God, they actually intersect at one place. And that place was Calvary. The two roads intersect at Calvary. Let me tell you how. Because what happens at Calvary is that Jesus, after he's lived this perfect life of obedience to the law of God, what he does is he puts himself all the way forward at the end of the wrong way. And he brings the consequences of that wrong way, that easy and wide way. He brings them out of the future into the present and shows us what the consequences are most dramatically, not in words, but with his shed blood and his suffering at the cross. And what we're seeing there is is the end of the road that is the wide gate and the easy way. That, friends, is the judgment of God upon the fool. And Jesus 
out of his great love for you and for sinners in this world, has made himself the bearer of all the consequences of the wrong way and has been willing to bear in his body all the consequences of that wrong way. And he means for you and for me to see that on the cross and to respond to it on the cross. And the other road is there as well because it's in that same event that we are being shown the way to life, the only way to life. Friends, the cross is a very narrow thing. It's a very narrow thing. If you do not trust your whole self and your whole destiny to the substitutionary death of Christ as the payment for your sins, you will be destroyed by God's judgment. Jesus tells you this because he loves you enough to warn you before you get to the end. The second parable is about the two trees or false prophets. And Jesus is warning us. You know, he's the teacher, right? In verses 15 through 20, he says, Beware of false prophets. If his first warning alerted us to the dangers of the wide and the popular way that leads to destruction, his second warning concerns the danger of false teaching and our susceptibility to it. Now notice very carefully, Jesus is pointing out to us that the false prophets know they're false. And they dress up like sheep to make themselves look like they are one of us. But what they are inwardly is not sheep, but predators. See, beware of verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They're there. They're there to pray. And Jesus is saying, as you travel down the road, you are going to be vulnerable to deceiving teachers. Remember, false Falsehoods are going to uh, enter into your life through those who are bent on your destruction. That's the danger that Jesus sees for us. And I think in context, what Jesus is saying is, listen, I just told you that, that the way to life is narrow. And I want to warn you that that is unpopular. That is going to be contrary, not just to your common sense and your preferences, but it's going to make you very unpopular in the world. And there's going to be a lot of pressure upon you once you come into my church. The danger in the church, inside the church, isn't so much that that Christians, that a false teacher would come in and, and the teacher would say, go sin as much as you want. And so all the Christians would say, OK, let's go sin as much as we want. That's not the danger. Not an abandoned gospel. The danger is a diluted gospel. And Jesus says, don't believe people when they tell you inside the church that the way of a disciple is not hard and doesn't involve a daily death. Don't believe them. Measure, measure the teacher's teaching by the fruit his life produces because bad trees in the end will not produce good fruit and a good tree in the end will not produce bad fruit Jesus says test my teaching by the fruit of my life that's an amazing thing that he's saying, because what he's doing is he's saying, listen, I'm the one true prophet. You need to trust me. It's my teaching that's the gold standard. It's my teaching against which you, against which you must measure all other teaching. I'm the true prophet. And friends, measure my teaching and the truthfulness of my teaching by the fruit that my life produces because of my teaching. Well, what what is the fruit that Jesus's life produces that we look at? And we have the benefit of knowing the whole gospel, right? And when we look at Jesus' life, why, why we should trust Him, right? Why we should trust Him is Jesus' desire for us is to set us free from falsehood. It's to protect us. 
It's to protect us from the destructiveness of lies. Friends, do you know that when I was a non-Christian, what I've come to understand is that when I was a non-Christian, I thought that the biggest problem in my life was other people or, you know, stuff around me or outside of me. And I've come to understand that my biggest problem as a non-Christian was that my life was built around lies about God. He's not good. He's not holy. Maybe he doesn't even exist. I don't need to obey him. He's there for me. I'm not there for him. Oh, that's deadly. You might think that the biggest problem in your life is an illness or the biggest problem in your life is that you've got a family that's gone sideways or your marriage or your work or your money. Friends, those are all real problems. I don't mean in any way to diminish them. I just... I just want to listen to what Jesus says here and say, you know, all problems are not equal. There are some that are more urgent than others. And the most important problem affecting everyone who is a non-Christian is that their life is built together and according to a structure of lies about God. Usually unconsciously. And so Jesus' gift is truth. And the reason we should trust him is because the fruit of his life shows that he's not, he's not false. He's not like the false prophets. He comes to feed us, not to feed off of us. He came, friends, as a sheep, but really as the good shepherd for the sheep. Not as the predator of the sheep, but as the good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. The price of his teaching was the price of his own blood. He didn't live off the sheep. He gave his life so that the sheep, us, so we might live. Friends, you've got to trust him. He put his life where his teaching was. It cost him everything. And he says, watch out. I love you. The third one. The danger of verses 21 through 23, the danger of what's really a self-deceived disciple. If we're going to rank the most chilling verses in the New Testament, these would have to be on that list, wouldn't they? 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, see, Jesus is the judge at the end of history. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow, what a shock. I mean, wow. If... If verses 15 through 20 were about intentionally deceptive teachers and prophets who come into the church, these verses show us something very different. This is not uh, actively deceptive people. These are are people who are self-deceived. And we're out of the realm of metaphor now. And Jesus has has fast-forwarded us to the, the end of history, to Judgment Day. And he's saying at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, this is incredible. He's saying there are going to be many people who come to me on that day. Come to me as the judge on that day and who say to me, Lord, Lord. That's an emphatic, right? The repetition means that they appear to really mean it. And these people have an awesome resume, don't they? They prophesied in the name of Jesus. That means teaching and preaching. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Wow, that's powerful. They did many mighty deeds in the name of Jesus. That's that's an awesome resume. If I was going to do a little pop quiz and be nasty pastor, I could give you a pop quiz and I could say, hey, wouldn't these be the signs of somebody who was very likely going to make it in the kingdom of heaven? I bet a lot of people would say yes. It's quite a resume. I don't have those things on my resume. You notice Jesus' answer? He says, not just that he's excluding them from the kingdom of heaven, but he says, 
They're workers of lawlessness. What? They're using Jesus' name. They're doing spiritual things. They're totally engaged. He calls them workers of lawlessness. What in the world is going on? What is the nature of this warning? Well, I think Jesus' answer is, the beginning of his answer is really the key. He says, I never knew you. I never knew you. You see, these are folks who are using Jesus' name. But do you notice when they appear before him on judgment day, what is the substance of their plea? What is the case that they bring before the judge of the living and the dead? It is what we did. We prophesied. We cast out demons. Look at what we did. Many mighty deeds. The reason Jesus calls these people workers of lawlessness is because they are self-righteous. Their plea before God is, look what we did. And friends, I cannot tell you how much I know, how much I know that that is a deeply entrenched misunderstanding in many hearts. That the key thing to be able to say to Jesus when you face him on the last day is, look at what I did. And I want, I have prayed this week that God in His mercy would show you that that is not acceptable. You see, there's only one thing. You have to be in a relationship with Jesus. You can't, you can't just live a life that's busy with spiritual deeds or good deeds and then slap some Jesus frosting on it and expect Jesus to approve you. And there are a lot of people, Jesus says it, I'm not making it up, there are a lot of people, Jesus is saying, with Jesus frosting all over them. And the cake is rotten inside because it's based on what they have done. When the whole reason I have come is because of what they've done. The whole reason I have to give my life in obedience in life and in death is because of what they've done. Jesus is calling us into a deep relationship of repentance and discipleship with him that is based wholly on his work. And he's telling us this, his desire. Friends, this ought to thrill your hearts. Oh, why would you ever hold on to your own resume? Here is the judge of all the earth. Here is the savior of mankind saying, you know what I want? Do you know what I really insist upon? Do you know what is non-negotiable for me is your love. I want you not to be, I want you to be sentenced not to depart from me on that last day. I want to be able to say to you, remain with me. And that means you have to, you have to empty your hands. There is no work that you can do that will gain you entrance into the kingdom of heaven. There is no resume, there is no quality of life that is good enough for you to get into the kingdom of heaven. The gospel is not a blueprint for you to build with. The gospel is about the work of Jesus Christ and Him alone. And friends, if you are in this camp, Jesus is calling you to repent as well of your religious deeds, of your spiritual conquests, of all your confidences that are in everything except Jesus. He's calling you to wipe off the Jesus frosting and to say, where is my heart. Take my heart, Master. Take my heart. There is nothing that a human being should want more than to have Jesus say on that last day, I know you. And friends, the reason we should trust Him is because Jesus never did anything, anything half-hearted for us. He's calling us away from a hollowness, and there was nothing He ever did that was hollow. He did prophesy, 
But He did it from love for us. He did cast out demons. He did it from a whole heart of love for us. He did many mighty deeds and He always brought His whole self for us. He loved us and delivered Himself up for His bride on the cross, friends. He didn't just go through the motions. And so a disciple of a Lord who didn't go through the motions cannot be somebody who just goes through the religious motions. It's not safe. And then finally, the danger of the wrong foundation. Two men, both build. Two men, both find themselves in a storm. It's an image for the end of their lives. Their house. They've each built their house. It's the sum total of their lives. Jesus pictures a storm, exactly the same storm comes to both men. Wind blows, the rain falls, wind beats against the, against the house, and the first house, it stands. The second house, same wind comes, same rain falls, same wind beats against the, the house, same way. There's a great fall. What's the difference? Well, different building materials. Maybe uh, man number two wasn't a good architect. Maybe he's about as good on home projects as Mike Francis. Is it something about the man? Is it something about the building materials? You notice the story's not about the buildings. There's one factor that Jesus identifies. It's the foundation. What have these men built upon? What is it that their lives are resting upon? Either the rock, which is very clearly a reference to God, right? Jesus himself, he's the only rock. Or the sand. Friends, here's what's shocking about this. Both these people are inside the church. You see, both of these men hear Jesus' teaching. Right? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then the second man. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. You see, this is, a, this is an image that is applying to the inside of this room and every heart in this room and everyone who hears the words of Jesus. And Jesus is, is sifting my heart and he's sifting your heart. And he's saying, he's reminding us, it is not enough just to know. It is not enough just to hear. It is not enough just to be able to say the truth. There has to be the kind of life commitment to Jesus that does what he says. And let me put it this way, that even desires to do what he says. Because we're going to see in the sermon that the standard is, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Chapter 5, verse 48. And that's meant to cut us off at our knees. So that's why the very first beatitude is such good news. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But the poor in spirit are defined by a desire to do the will of their master who gave himself for us. And the reason we need to trust him is because he has gone into the storm for us. And he has given his life in, in the storm to bear the full force of the wrath of God in the storm and to bear that judgment for his people and all who will trust in him. And he has come out of that in the power of his resurrection, proving that he alone is the rock that you can build on and that you must build on in order to survive the judgment of God. He alone is the foundation of the kingdom. Now, one more point. And I know you've been very patient. So I'm grateful for that. And it's just this. The greatness of Jesus' call to men. This has two parts to it. The first is, make sure you see who Jesus is in this passage. There's only one reasonable conclusion. He is God. And he means to identify himself as the king. 
You see, he's the one who stands and sees eternity in verses 13 through 14. He's the one whose perspective is such that he can tell there are only two ways and one of them leads to life and one of them leads to destruction. Only God could see and say those things. He alone is the true prophet whose teaching is the gold standard against which all other teaching has to be measured. All teaching is not equal. Jesus is saying, I am the true prophet. Only God could say that. And finally, he's the one, right, who is the judge. He's the one we're all going to face. He's either going to be our savior or he's going to be the the judge against whose life and death our lives are going to be measured. And he is saying that the definition of what it means to, to go into destruction, to be cast off ultimately by God, is to be separated from him. He says, depart from me. You see, the greatness of Jesus must be seen that to not have Jesus is the greatest of losses and to have him is the greatest of gains. And that means, friends, that there's only one reasonable response to Jesus's call. And that reasonable response is to get out of the crowd. To get out of the crowd. You see, the Sermon on the Mount ends, and Matthew's got this ironic touch in it. He says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he's teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. What you need to hear there is that Matthew sees that as very ambiguous. You can be, you can be in the crowd, friends, and, and be astonished until the cows come home. But being astonished at Jesus' teaching is not the same thing as being committed to him. So get out of the crowd and follow him. And follow him with your whole self into the whole world. You can trust him. Let's pray. Lord, your call is so exacting and is so powerful and is grounded in your work for us and your great love for us. And we need your grace to respond in the way that your call is worthy of a response. So help us, we pray in your name. Amen. Sing now, Rejoice the Lord is King.